Last week we looked at, at part one of, of Cornelius and Peter and this encounter, and we discovered how Peter needed to come and understand how God had made all things clean. And then even how Gentiles could come and hear uh, the gospel. The closest analogy that I can think of to how Jews and Gentiles got along in the ancient world, particularly around this time, uh, would be to look back in our own American history and see some of the the horrible uh, sins of racism that we have in our country. And uh, you can pick eras before the Civil War. You can pick eras during the Civil War. You can pick eras during the Civil Rights Movement. But oftentimes there were radical tensions between uh, African-Americans or, or blacks and, and white people. And there was often a great hatred. And unfortunately, it often carried itself into the life of the church. In various times and places, churches themselves being segregated. Uh, and this should not be because when someone comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are in the body of Christ and we are one in Christ. So that Paul will later say there is no Jew or Gentile. The, the racial tension between Gentiles and Jews uh, would have been about the same level and about the same par. Uh, Jews would have considered these Gentiles extremely unclean. Uh, not obeying the word of God, not, as we looked at last week, following uh, the ceremonial laws. And so now we're finding out that, that Peter is learning that Jesus has taken away these food laws, these ceremonial laws, because he's fulfilled the law. And so there is no more division between Jew and Gentile. And you remember, even, even in the temple, as set out in the Old Testament, Gentiles could only come so far into uh, the temple. They couldn't go into the inner courts. They had to be on the very outer court. And, and part of the reason was for the ceremonial uncleanliness. Uh, part of the reason was uh, unless they had converted fully to, to the Old Testament, they were not allowed to come into God's presence. But now as the gospel comes, the gospel fulfills the word of God. Jesus fulfills these things. And so in turn, he begins to fulfill the plan that has always been the plan, and that is that the gospel will go to the nations. So you think of, of Romans chapter uh, 1, that Paul says, I believe that the gospel is the power of God. I'm not ashamed of it, he says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is, a, that is an order of time. That is that when Jesus came, he, he did preach in Judea. But the plan always was that it would continue to spread out beyond the borders of Israel. So our main point this morning is simply this. All are invited to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is crucial for when you, when you think about what it is that we do as believers. Who is it that we share the gospel with and invite to believe? All people everywhere are invited to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord of the heavens and earth. And so he sends out an announcement of the gospel that he has died and rose again. And he appoints these disciples to be his witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he calls all people to repent. All are invited to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this should have implications for today. When you think about witnessing to other people, we don't wait to talk to people and say, well, I'm not sure if they're ready yet. I'm not sure if they're the right kind of person that would uh, receive this. Uh, or heaven forbid, we, we judge them by their status or their economics. Are they rich? Are they poor? Or even worse, by their race. And say, well, I don't know if they really should have the gospel. All are invited to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first point is all are invited to come to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus is Lord of all. So one of the things that Peter himself begins to recognize is that Jesus, is, if He is Lord of all, as He has already been saying, therefore all of creation, all human beings throughout creation, doesn't matter where you're from, what's your background, every tongue, tribe, and nation should hear the Word of God and be called to repent. So, what we have here is again, the Gentiles have gathered with Cornelius in his home to hear the Word of God. And they've uh, gathered around and Peter is there. In verse 30 and 32, Cornelius recounts how he was told by the angel to find Peter. And we looked at this uh, last week. The angel actually came and said, we've heard your prayers or God has heard your prayers. And and now go down to Simon the Tanner's house and look for a guy named Peter. And so Peter has come and he has brought Jewish uh, believers with him. People who are circumcised, we'll, we'll see it draws attention to in verse 45. And then it says in verse 33, Cornelius says, so I went for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, all we are all here in the presence of God to hear that what you have been commanded by the Lord. What what I I find interesting here, what, what you notice right away, he says, we are all here in the presence of God that you yeah to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Uh, In what way is the Lord there? He is not there in the sense that we sometimes see in the Old Testament where His glory visibly comes down, as in the tabernacle when He takes up residence. The Lord is there and you can't miss it because He's radiating His presence. And yet, God's people gathering to hear God's Word, there is an expectation that the presence of God is there. And I think this is more than just God's general omnipresence. You can go anywhere in God's creation and God is there. He is everywhere within His creation because He is sovereign over His creation. The Scriptures describe God as the eyes of God roaming back and forth over the earth, not missing anything, seeing all things. Now, obviously, God does not have literal eyes that dart back and forth and are everywhere, but it's a picture that God is everywhere. But there is a special sense, and even Peter says, or or Jesus says, excuse me, in the Gospels, that where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am. And it refers to when a church gathers and has to make decisions related to church discipline. That God is in the presence of His people when they gather. And in the same way, when we gather on Sundays, we should have an expectation that we are here to hear the Word of God And in that sense, God is present. Uh, As long as we are opening Scripture, as long as we are being faithful to the Word of God, there is a special way that God looks down upon us and He is here. His Holy Spirit is at work. We are the body of Christ. 
Then Peter begins his sermon to these people by acknowledging what he has learned. Peter is always that guy in Scripture that that's, he's, seems a little bit behind the eight ball on, on learning some of these things, right? Uh, when, when Jesus, right when he confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says, and I'm going to suffer and die, and Peter's like, no way, Lord. And Peter's like, yeah, or Jesus is like, yeah, Peter, this is the way it's got to be. Later on, Jesus says, you know, you're all going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, no, not me. And of course, Peter is told, and he does, he denies the Lord three times. Uh, and then we're in earlier in the chapter, Peter sees this sheet from heaven, the voice of God coming down saying, rise and, and eat. And, and Peter says, no, Lord, not me. I've, I've never done these things. Peter's always that guy that's catching up, learning these things. God is teaching him. So he opens his mouth and it says, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. For in every, for, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. God shows no partiality. It means that God doesn't look upon certain people and see things in them that He likes and show them special favors. Uh, this comes right out of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. For the Lord is your God, the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and does not take bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now then, this is 2 Chronicles 19.7, Now then, fear the Lord your, may the, let the fear of the Lord your God be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice in God or with the Lord our God or taking partiality or taking bribes. And later on in other passages in Deuteronomy as well, judges that are set up in the nations are said, don't be partial. Don't take bribes. One, one way that you could be partial, and, and particularly in the ancient world, but it happens uh, in our day today, when, when someone comes into your court, you could, you could take a bribe. They could give you money, and you'll not decide the case on the merits of the case, but based on who pays you money. Another more subtle way would be the, the trading of favors. So a rich man and a poor man, uh, a person with great community influence, uh, maybe in our day, you know, a, a politician comes before your court and he's taking the lowly guy, the, the guy who's a nobody, has no influence. And, and let's say just on the merits of the case that the lowly guy, the poor guy, the, the, the guy not well known in the community is actually right. But to show partiality would say, well, I'm going to give favors to this person. We see it sometimes in our world today. But God does not work that way. He does not show partiality. He is completely fair. He doesn't look down from heaven upon us and say, you know, generally, Tim over here, he's a pretty good guy. I'm going to show him some favoritism. I'm going to do some nice things for him. But this guy over here, he's a really big jerk. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stick it to him. God doesn't look at the Jews and the Gentiles and say, wow, these Jews, look how good they've been down through the years. I'm going to not take my gospel to anyone else, but be partial to them. Even as His chosen people, God's plan is that they would always be a kingdom of priests, 
a light to the nations. God's plan in sending the gospel and electing people has been that there will be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it uh, in various places in Isaiah, in the Psalms, that the nations will come before the Lord. God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't, in that respect, play favorites where he looks down upon someone and sees something special in them or sees some reason in them that he should be kind and nice to them and then see some other reason in someone else and say, well, I'm just going to ignore them. They're nobody important. In some ways, this is how the Jewish people at the time treated Gentiles. They're nobody important. Think of how far they are from God. They don't like God or His law. In some ways, that's how Christians today treat unbelievers. Rather than sharing the gospel with them, rather than starting from the foundation that we are all sinners, and we too were once by nature children of wrath, according to Ephesians. But God in His great mercy made us alive in Christ, raising us up with Him. So we in turn should look upon other people and have mercy and compassion and say, that same gospel that made me alive and changed me is the same gospel that they need to hear and be invited to receive. Second, I want you to just notice quickly with verse 35, and I apologize, my mic keeps sliding down here. Verse 35, it says, But in every nation, everyone who fears him and who does what is right is acceptable to him. I just want to draw this to your attention because some people will use that as a verse to say, People in other nations don't really need to hear the gospel. People in foreign lands, as long as they fear God and and obey what they know, they'll, they'll be okay. And if they never get the gospel, they can still be saved. That's not what Peter means here. When he says, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He's also not talking about some kind of uh, works-based salvation, that if Cornelius would just act like a believer and obey God, Cornelius can be saved in that way. Rather, if you notice in the context, it tells us that salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. So look down at verse 43. To him, all to Jesus, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then consider again, second part of the context is Cornelius. This passage, this idea of fearing God, this is the idea of repentance and and this idea of walking in righteousness or what is doing what is right and acceptable is the idea of the fruit of repentance. What was Cornelius doing? Cornelius was praying. Cornelius was seeking God. Cornelius had apparently donated to the synagogue and helped it out. Based on what he knew to that point, he was following the Old Testament. He was seeking God in prayer and he was seeking to obey by giving alms to the poor. And now that the full revelation of Jesus, his death and resurrection has come, that magnificent turning point that is the hinge that connects the the Old and New Testament, Cornelius needed to hear this message. And what Peter is saying is that people everywhere from every nation, if they turn to God, if they repent, they can receive the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What Peter is saying is not, well, you know, they can be saved just as they are. What Peter is saying is that any sinner can come and know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It doesn't matter where they're from. And again, this would have been radical. These Gentiles who spurn God and mock God's law. God's going to save them? Yeah, because they're just as much a sinner as everyone else. And Paul draws that even out in Romans chapter 1 and 2 where he focuses in on the sins that are particularly uh, associated with being a Gentile. Then in chapter 2, he focuses on the sins of here are the Jews and they don't even keep God's law. And he gets to chapter 3 and he says, we're all in the same boat. We are all sinners and we all need the same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God doesn't show partiality. Jesus is the Messiah in fulfillment of the Old Testament, but He is not someone that only Jews need to believe in. Every single individual needs to hear that the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. So, Jesus came to the Jew first, but He is also Lord of all. Look at um, uh, Romans Excuse me, look at Acts chapter 10, verses 36 and 37. For as for the word that he sent to Israel, reaching good news of peace, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So here we have it very clearly. Jesus did come to the nation of Israel first. Early on, his ministry is primarily focused to the people who had the Old Testament, the Jewish people who were expecting the Messiah. When he sends the 12 disciples out and he sends them, he he limits them to the surrounding regions in Galilee and Judea and around Jerusalem because he is planning to saturate the gospel in that area. And then beyond that, after he ascends or as before he ascends into heaven, he says, you need to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 8. So the plan is kind of like, uh, you know, how a bomb goes off. You have uh, ground zero. And when the bomb goes off, it radiates outward. Well, the gospel comes down in the Lord Jesus Christ. He lands in Bethlehem and he preaches the word there as he begins his ministry. But the plan is that it will expand outward. Maybe bomb isn't a good analogy, but think of when you drop a stone in, in in a pond and how the ripples start in the center and they move outward. This has been God's plan. It starts in the center, God in the Old Testament using Israel as a chosen nation, but his plan has always been to share the gospel, to spread his glory into creation so that people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation would hear the gospel, would believe, and come back. And and Peter is relearning that in a sense. And I think there's, a, in a sense, that we need to relearn that ourselves. That the gospel is, is not just a message for Christians. It's not just something that we should talk about inside the church. It's a message that needs to be spread outward and go places where it's, it's never been. 
And that may mean going to Turkey. That may mean crossing the street and talking to a neighbor who has never heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord. He's the King. He's the Master. He's the Messiah. Messiah is the Jewish word for anointed. That God anointed him and chose him and made him special and lifted him up, making the highest king, the king of kings, the, the Lord of lords. And because Jesus, when he ascends into heaven, sits down at the right hand of the Father, he now is the ruler over all of creation. Abraham Kuyper, a theologian, uh, a Dutch theologian, says there's not one square inch of this creation that God, that Jesus doesn't look at and declare mine. It belongs to him because it belongs to him. That announcement that he is the Lord needs to go out to all of creation. And that announcement that he is the Lord then demands that all people respect him, honor him. And and we call that repentance, turning to him and receiving the forgiveness of sins so that we are not his enemies any longer. When it comes to salvation, There is one God, and that one God offers the same salvation to all people. This Jew-Gentile tension, we often see it in the early church. You see it in Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. Or is is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith? and the uncircumcised through faith. Meaning, there's the same salvation for all who believe. Why? Because we have the same God. There is only one God. And the implication to that is there is only one way in salvation, and that's Jesus Christ, and that's receiving Him in faith alone. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you know then the next verse, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, into all the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But why is that commission given? Because all authority is under Jesus. He is Lord of all. So, The first application is you and I need to be a repentant people. If the Lord Jesus is Lord over all things, and he is, he has authority over all things, and he does, then we need to respond by bending the knee, by repenting. If a great and mighty nation were to invade our country today, and all resistance was completely uh, destroyed, our only real solution would be to turn and submit to that king. Now, I know, you know, politically, and, you know, we like being a free people, and we might not like doing that, but, but think of how it was in the ancient world. When armies would invade, you either got run over by the army or you yielded to the army. Well, God isn't an army in that sense. But it does us no good 
to stand there in stubbornness and shake our hands and our fists at the Almighty and say, I am not going to bend the knee. Because one day everybody will bend the knee because He is the Lord of all things. You will be faced with that reality and you will not be able to deny it. But when you hear the gospel now, you're hearing that same truth and you have the opportunity and the privilege and the delight to to turn and give your life over to him and say, I yield, I give up, I repent, I know I'm a sinner. And I need you as a savior, as a king, as a Lord. We need to be a repentant people. And the scriptures tell us that God commands all people to repent precisely because Jesus is Lord of all. Second this morning, all are invited to salvation through faith in Jesus because Jesus is the judge and savior of all. So one of the reasons that the proclamation goes, you know, this is an extension of this idea of his lordship. If he's Lord of all things, he is going to either judge you or save you. Peter then proclaims, notice how he goes through the earthly ministry of Christ to show how Jesus was there to minister deliverance. So Peter offers Jesus as the Savior. Look at verse 38. He's again going through and saying, you know these things, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with his Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus says in Matthew 12:28, for if it is by the spirit of God, which I cast out demons and the understanding is, yes, it is by the spirit of God, but he's talking to his opponents. If it's by the spirit of God that I do these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. It's a, an awkward analogy because we don't think of Jesus being a thief. But Jesus is the the man who is plundering the house. He looks around creation and says, you know, the devil is running rampant. There is wickedness. Uh, There is sin. Evil seems to be triumphing. Jesus bringing the kingdom of God begins to defeat evil. And one of the ways he does it is he heals people. He undoes the effects of the curse and the fall. He drives out demons, undoing the powers of the dominion of darkness, saying and showing, I am more powerful. And so Satan is called the God of this age. But Jesus, in coming to earth, shows that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who upholds Satan. And Satan only exists because Jesus allows it. And so he drives out these demons, saying, I am more powerful powerful. He's liberating people. He's showing them that he is a good and gracious savior. Jesus Christ then completes this mission by dying on the cross and rising again. And Peter preaches this. We are witnesses, verse 39, of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And when they put him to death by hanging, they put him to death by hanging on a tree But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not that all people, not 
to all people, but to those of us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose again from the dead. Paul will call this the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he will call this the matter of first importance. If you don't tell someone that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day, you aren't preaching the gospel. Okay, you can tell someone a lot of things about God, but until you share with them that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, until you bring up that matter of of first importance, you have not shared the gospel, the good news. A lot of times instruction is given to people, how do I, I share my faith? And and people are, are told, well, we'll just share what God did in your life. And, and hear me really clearly, you know, that can be a helpful way to start conversation. That can certainly be something that you bring up in the context of, of talking about God and what he's done and what he means. But if you only talk about how God changed your life, and never mention what he did to change your life, Jesus dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, you have not shared the gospel, the good news. You've shared something nice that has happened to you, but it really has no authority. And see, we live in a day and age where, where everyone has some sort of experience that they want to share with other people. And so you share a story like that. Well, this is what God did for me. And, and someone might respond to you, well, that worked for you. And our, our culture is very comfortable with this idea of if it works for you, who am I to say that it's wrong? That's just not my thing. See, when we share the gospel, we are not just saying what worked for us, although it certainly did work in our lives, praise God, we are going back into a real past event and saying, God actually did this. And the reason you're not just invited to repent, but called and and commanded to repent is that God has actually done something here in Jesus. Again, if you don't get to what Jesus did on the death and res- in his death and resurrection, that is the means that God forgives our sins. If you never share that, you have not shared the gospel. Christ's death and resurrection then also defeats death and the devil. Going along with this theme of, of Jesus coming to earth, delivering people from the oppression of the devil in their healings. Notice what, what Hebrews says as well. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That really is the good news. We have the death sentence on us. We are all going to die. And that death, unless we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that death will separate us from God. And and this life, apart from Christ, it is slavery. Slavery to death. Slavery to sin. Slavery to the cares of this world. 
that weigh on us and bother us and oppress us. And the Lord Jesus Christ, in his defeat of death, in the death and in his resurrection, liberates all those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of all. But look also at verse 42 and 43. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. We are commanded to preach the gospel to all people. We are commanded and here these disciples testify to what they've actually seen. And and it draws it out that not every individual saw the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the disciples did. The apostles did. The women who went to the grave that morning did. And they were the testimony. And they are to tell people. And by extension, new believers then are to also tell people. But also testify that Jesus is appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. You see, Jesus Christ is the Savior of all who will come to him. But because he is Lord of all, he will one day judge all of creation. He will set all things right. It will be his great and and final act of this liberation, of this freeing creation from its slavery to death and He'll send the devil, the God of this age, into the lake of fire for all eternity. But the living and the dead will come before the judgment seat of Christ. And he will be impartial in his judgment. There will be no hiding of sins before him on that day. No making excuses. Well, God, it it really wasn't that bad. He will be the impartial judge. To those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll usher us into the kingdom. He'll invite us to sit with him, to fellowship with him. But it won't be because we were good people. It will be because he was a gracious savior. And he opened our eyes and we saw it and we believed and we received the forgiveness of sins. Don't make light of the judgment. I think it was Christopher Hitchens, uh, a very famous atheist who who died a few years ago from cancer. I I think it was him who said, someone asked him, what what would you do if you got before God on the day of judgment and and you found out God was real? He had denied for years that there even was a God. And it was either him or it was another famous atheist, but he said, I'll say there wasn't enough evidence I couldn't see it basically wasn't enough for me to know there will be on that day no hiding before God no excuses God will say you knew what the Bible said and in this case Christopher Hitchens had heard the word of God before he'll say you can look out and look at the stars and they show that there's a God who has power and glory. Someone had to create them. The heavens declare the glory of God. You should have seen that. But Jesus will be 
an impartial judge. Christ's lordship over all means that one day when he returns, he will demonstrate that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Acts 731 says, quote, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in a righteous man whom he's appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We know that Jesus Christ will return one day to judge the earth precisely because he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the one who who bore the weight of sin on the cross. He completely exhausted it. And his resurrection, his rising up is God saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, for the believer, Christ has already gone through the judgment for us, borne the wrath of God, and the fact that he rises again from the dead says he triumphed over that judgment. But because he rose from the dead, you know there is a judgment. And so the choice is either believe in Jesus and have that work that he did on the cross apply to you, or wait and face the judgment yourself where you will bear the weight of the wrath of God for your sins. There's a a number of Old Testament passages. Uh, We could quote Psalm 2. We could quote Psalm 72. There's a few places where it talks about the Old Testament setting this up, that the Messiah would judge the earth for the Lord. But I just want you to notice Joel 2.32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says very clearly um, in verse... um, I lost it now. In verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's a promise. Some of the prophets like Joel would say it, and and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That name is Jesus. If I profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I can be assured that I receive the forgiveness of sins. Complete forgiveness. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. But I want you to notice this. If you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have comfort and assurance that the guilt of your sins, the wrath of God that you and I justly deserve, that would be a fair punishment for our guilt, it's taken away. It's washed Away. We sing in the hymn, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood, to every believer the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. My hope and my comfort are not in what I do, my hope and my comfort are not in good works that I can somehow bring them before God and have enough of them. My hope and my comfort aren't even in my ability to turn to Him. My hope and my comfort are in the One whom I'm turned to. We believe 
in Jesus. We trust ourselves to Him and believe upon Him. And it's not your strength that makes you strong enough to grab hold of Christ. It is Christ offering to you the Gospel saying, this is what I have done. Believe in Me. And we, in a sense, throw ourselves on the mercy of the court of Jesus Christ and say, forgive Me. And He does it. And it is absolutely free and it is absolutely offered to all. Third, this morning, all are invited to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit moves as he wills. I want you to notice this. Peter is preaching the gospel. He's, he's sharing these things. He, he doesn't even get to the point where he says, you know, OK, now bow your heads. And if you'd like to receive Jesus, pray a prayer. You know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But but God is so at work here in this moment that Peter doesn't even get to that part. He's just walking along, you know, talking about Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He died on the cross. Everybody who believes in him will be saved. He doesn't get to the question, would you like to believe in Jesus? And all of a sudden, people are believing in Jesus. This is the, the power of God manifesting himself in this very moment. It says, and while he was still saying these things, he's, he's right in the middle of his sermon. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. This is all of these believers, Cornelius and other people, or not yet believers, but all of these Gentiles, uh, Cornelius and others, all of a sudden are becoming believers. And the Holy Spirit just falls on them, is opening their eyes, and, and it just mu- it must have been amazing. I, I can't even imagine what it would have looked like. And then it says in verse 45, and the believers among the circumcised. That means the good Jewish believers, the one who kept the law, who knew their Old Testament. Uh, it's the, kind of like the kids who grew up in Sunday school, who knew all of the ins and outs. They were good Jewish people. Now they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. It says what? It says, and the believers from the among the, the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentiles. The Gentiles, these people who for thousands of years, by and large, had been pagans, had been wicked, had been trying to kill Jews, destroy them. There was this animosity between the two peoples. The Gentiles are getting the full blessings of salvation, of the kingdom of God, of being in the body of Christ. And these circumcised people, the ones who heard the gospel first, are amazed. Maybe some of them scratching their head. You know, what is God doing? Doesn't he know that they're Gentiles? But amazed. The presence of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the presence of the, the, the gospel of salvation in their hearts. Opening it. Jesus says you can't be born again unless you are born of the Spirit and of water. It's, it's a picture of Ezekiel and the cleansing of the new covenant that needs to come through the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus says the spirit is like the wind. It blows where it wills. So it is those who are born of God. 
the Holy Spirit just came down in that moment because the preaching of the gospel was there and he opened hearts and he opened eyes and these people started believing. Let me give you just a couple things. One, pray for the preaching of the word. Pray that the spirit would work. Two, when you share the gospel, it is not your job to save people. You are faithful to the message. You can be persuasive. That's good. You can have good illustrations. You should certainly know your Bibles. You share the message and God will work. And God will work. Pray that God will work, but God will work. And if you share the message and you invite someone to believe and they say, no, thanks, it's not for me. Don't worry. You have sown the seed. And God will work as he wills. Don't ever look at someone and say, well, they might not be ready to hear the gospel. A little kid, well, they're too young to understand these things. An old adult, well, I've known them for so many years and we've tried to talk. They wouldn't be interested this time around. You never know because it's the Spirit of God who works and opens eyes and hearts. And I was going to go into Galatians a little bit, but just trust me when I say, well, that's probably not good. Galatians 3, uh, 13 and 14, just write those down if you have a chance to look at them. The blessings of Abraham to the Gentiles is the Holy Spirit. That the promise to Abraham in Genesis was that in you all nations will be blessed. And, and God is really fulfilling here the Old Testament. God's plan has always been that Gentiles would be saved and blessed through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through ultimately the line that the Messiah comes from, through Jesus himself. And this is the blessing overflowing to them. And I had a whole bunch of verses that I was going to share. Obviously, they go and they baptize then. They've received a... Look at what Peter says in verse 47. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have these Gentiles, and this is drawn out in Ephesians chapter 2. I mentioned that chapter last week, but these Gentiles are now in the exact same status as Jews. They are people of God, and we are brought together and made one in Christ. The practical implication for all of us that are here in this room that believe in Jesus, we are all brothers and sisters. We are family. We should act like it, and there should be a love between us. Regardless of where we come from, regardless of our race, regardless of whether we're rich or poor, um, regardless of whether or not we look funny or talk funny or whatever it might be that, that causes prejudice in our world. When we're in Christ, we are all the same. Let me give you three quick applications this morning, and I've already hinted at the one. Don't judge other people. Don't look at people and say, well, they're not ready or they wouldn't want the word of God or I just don't think they would ever believe. Don't judge people. Don't keep people from hearing the word of God. Shame on us if we look at someone and judge them and think I'm not going to share the gospel with them. Second thing, there is a danger in, in what is sometimes called preparationism. That's, that's a fancy way of saying don't ever look at someone and say, well, let's see if they do X, Y, and Z and get ready 
before I share the gospel with them. This idea that, well, you know, maybe they should clean up their life a little bit. Um, Maybe they should get their act together. I want to see if they're really serious about hearing about God, and then I'll share the gospel with them. If someone walked in here today, and let's just say they looked horrible, they smelled horrible, uh, let's just say their whole body was tattooed, what would we say to them? Would we invite them in? Would we invite them to believe in Christ? What would we say if they were already a believer? Would we welcome them as a brother, a sister in Christ? Or would we kind of say, well, you know, they're not really taking things too seriously because they didn't get dressed up for church on a Sunday. God looks at the inside of the heart, not the outside of the heart. We need to be really careful that we don't get in this mindset of, of what does a person need to do to prepare to hear the gospel. We give them the gospel and God opens their hearts. And that's it. The second, the third thing is just kind of the danger of a cultural Christianity. This goes back to sort of the tension between Jews and Gentiles. These people marveling, the uncircumcised are getting saved. They're getting saved by the same faith. And later on in Acts 11 and Acts 15, people are going to have a real problem with that. Oh, these guys are Gentiles. I would say that in our day and age, We have a mindset of what a good Christian looks like. A good Christian looks like someone who has the fruit of the Spirit. That's it. I've been places where people come in and if they're not wearing a suit and tie or or a bow tie, no, I just, um, it's sort of like, well, you know, I'm not sure if they're taking Sunday worship very seriously. Oh, that person has a tattoo. Well, that person doesn't act a certain way. Be careful that you don't judge a person's salvation or their commitment to Christ based on outward traditions. When I was a kid, boys didn't wear earrings. You, you just and, and if you were a Christian, you really didn't wear an earring. I remember one time, a friend of mine, he was a missionary kid. He had a mullet. This dates things maybe a little bit. And he took the hair in the back and he made this really fine braid. He used to call that a rat tail. I think they're ugly, but that's what he wanted to do. And I remember somebody at church saying, wow, I can't believe they let him do that. The implication was maybe he's not a good Christian because he had a little braid in his hair, because he changed something about his outward appearance. At some points and times, Christians were people that didn't go to movies or opera theaters. Some of you might remember a day and age where where Christians, good Christians, they don't roller skate. I think somebody told me that was a thing one one time. I used to roller blade, so I I don't know. But, But do you see how we get in these cultural mindsets over the years of good Christians don't do this or that? And it has nothing to do with salvation. The Jewish believers had to learn that Gentiles were getting saved through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it had nothing to do with their outward appearance. 
and it had nothing to do with their keeping of the ceremonial law. And they could be good Christians and go on and never get circumcised. That's the real issue in the book of Galatians. But for us today, it's still an issue of the heart. Do you believe that salvation is by grace alone in Jesus Christ alone? Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we just thank you uh, for this day and the privilege of just gathering for your word. And we just pray that you would bless our, our time of communion now uh, as, as we share uh, around the table. In your precious name we pray. Amen.